welcome to Lots Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that when the stage play Doctor Who The Ultimate Adventure was announced by the Liverpool Empire in 1989, all that the theatre was able to confirm at first was that it was based on the BBC TV series. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about something, well something in particular that she remembers that I think she's hoping nobody else seems to, is journalist Emma <laughs> Burnell. Emma, what you up to? Where can we find it? I am online on Twitter most of the time. I'm a freelance journalist. You can look for my byline in lots of different places. And I have just written my own play, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. And hopefully you can find that in a good theatre sometime this summer, if we have good theatres sometime this summer. <laughs> I have to say, Tim, it's very unfair, me being on a show called Looks Unfamiliar for the third time, because I'm now looking very familiar, your listeners. <laughs> well, your choice. I'm going to use a clip here that's something that will be very familiar to people indeed, but absolutely not in this form. The first time that we met, we hated each other. No, you didn't hate me, I hated you. And the second time we met, you didn't even remember me. I did too, I remembered you. The third time we met, we became friends. We were friends for a long time. And then we weren't. And then we fell in love. Three months later, we got married. Only took three months. Twelve years and three months. We had a fantastic wedding. Oh, it really was. Mm. It's enormous coconut cake. Huge coconut cake with the tears. And we had this very rich chocolate sauce on the side. Right, because not everybody likes it on the cake because it gets soggy. Particularly coconut. It soaks up a lot of that stuff. It's important to keep it on the side. Right. And we had a fruit salad for people who don't like cake. Exotic fruit. But not on the side right in the middle of the bowl. Okay, you might recognise that as a scene from When Harry Met Sally, but you might be thinking, I don't recognise those voices at all. That's not Meg Ryan, that's not Billy Crystal, and you're absolutely right, it's not. Emma, I know this is one of your favourite films, but what form is it in here? This was a play at the, I think it was at the Haymarket Theatre, and I went to see it partly because, as you say, I love When Harry Met Sally, and frankly, it's quite a mistake to go and see plays of films you love. And I also went to see it because it it starred Luke Perry and Alison Hannigan, both of whom have a connection to my favourite thing in the world, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, it looks like it was the Haymarket in 2004. And I'm just interested because you seem to indicate in what you said just there that it didn't quite live up to your expectations. Now, given that it's one of your favourite films and it's got two people in who are associated with pretty much your favourite franchise of all, what was the experience like? It was like watching them do the film as karaoke. And that's the problem. They didn't divert from the source material almost at all. And so it literally was, you could just mouth the words along with them if you wanted to and they kind of even use some of the same intonation so again yeah it was like karaoke well, it's funny you should describe it as like that because the only the concrete thing I could find out about it apart from the reviews which we'll come back to in a minute was that the music was by Jamie Cullum and it's interesting that I then went around looking for Jamie Cullum's songs and when Harry met Sally there is no sign of them anywhere and he's a bit waste not want not with his music so it's clearly not being reused anywhere well I wonder if it was Jamie Cullum doing karaoke karaoke versions of now I want to say Ray Parker Jr but that's not right <laughs> Harry Connick Jr there's quite a bit of a difference between them <laughs> 
I would quite like to hear Harry Connick Jr. covering the Ghostbusters theme, though. You know, so would I. <laughs> but yeah, the reviews really weren't kind, the ones I've managed to find. I mean, there are some that are a bit kind of, this just goes to show that cinema is not as important as theatre. And, you know, no, not all is my reaction to that. And there was, in The Guardian, it seemed very concerned about the fact we didn't find out how Harry and Sally originally got their jobs, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's a bit meaningless. But a lot of the reviews seem to really, really go for Luke Perry and Alison Hannigan, pouring cold water on their acting ability, but also saying, well, there are no Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. Now, I think that's incredibly unfair because Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are good. They're not the be-all and end-all of acting, but also Luke Perry, decent enough in what he's in. He does make a good 19th century carousel for all you Simpsons fans. But Alison Hannigan, I mean, I'm not even that big on Buffy, but I know when she's playing things like Evil Willow, when she's mourning for Tara, that's the best acting in that show, I think. They're both fine actors, but as I say, they were just, I think, probably badly directed as much as anything else, because they weren't making choices. They were not making acting choices. They were just straight down the line, replicating the film. You know, I love karaoke, as you know, but I know the difference between people coming to see me sing Hearts Alone and people going to see Hearts sing alone. (laughs) But yeah, it just generally doesn't seem to have been well received at all. What's surprising is it did carry on for a bit with, do you know who replaced them in lead roles? Molly Ringwald and Michael Landers, who was Jimmy Olsen in Lois and Clark. So it did go on for a bit. So I don't know whether it was because it was actually popular with audiences, although not with you, obviously, or whether it was just, it would have been less cost effective to end it than to carry on, which I don't really know how the mechanics of theatre work, but I'm guessing that could be possible. Well, let me tell you, Tim, my guess is the Haymarket is a very, a decent sized West End theatre, really, really central. It's just round the corner from Trafalgar Square. So I imagine that there was an awful lot of pre-ticketing that was sold on just the idea of tourists going for a nice evening out at the theatre. Oh, darling, we know when Harry met Sally. That would be a nice, easy night out for us. So if you want to go to the West End, you don't want to think too much. You can see how that's a choice that you would make. So I imagine that the ticketing lasted like that and that's why they carried it on. You did say, though, that doing stage versions of films is never a good idea. It sounds like you've seen other things that didn't work as well. Well, the one that really makes me cringe to this day is Dirty Dancing. All of the things I love about Dirty Dancing aren't really in the stage version of Dirty Dancing. They massively overplay... It sounds weird to say they overplay the dancing, but they kind of... It becomes a musical rather than a film about dancing or in which dancing is a vehicle for certain amounts of narration. They took all the politics out of it, and then they re-injected some weird politics into it. There's this scene in it, the one scene that's not karaoke, was like where all the kids came together to talk about civil rights, based on one line in the movie, which is where Neil says, we're going to go on a freedom ride. They end up round this campfire singing, we shall overcome, and then in the sky appears the image of Martin Luther King. I thought you would say that the image of Patrick Swayze for a minute. Oh, honestly, I was like, this is so heavy-handed. It's hilarious. And it's like, what is this doing? 
thing in the middle of this depoliticized, defeminized, you know, a hen night version of Dirty Dancing. That's the one that really springs to mind when I think, yeah, don't make stage shows out of really good films. But I do know, and this is going to bring me on to talk about theatre in lockdown in a second, but you went to see the secret cinema of Dirty Dancing. I assume they did that better. Oh, much better. And it's coming back and it's literally around the corner from me. So I will be able, me and my sister who are going to go together, will be able to stagger home, which is fabulous. Even in the stupid heels I plan to wear. They did the secret bit, the immersive bit, really, really well. The cinema bit was less good because it was really quiet. Nobody could hear it. I was kind of explaining the story to about four or five groups of people who sat around me as it went along because I knew it that much off by heart that I'm like, okay, so in this scene, (laughs) X is happening. But yeah, the experience of being at Kellerman's for any girl who grew up loving Dirty Dancing was just fantastic. Well, I'm hoping they do a secret cinema of head so I can at least pretend to be the monkeys during the pauper song bit. <laughs> but that does bring me round to something I wanted to bring in, which is that, you know, the whole thing of immersive theatre, obviously in the case of secret cinema, it's live. But I know you do a lot of that, but it's all gone online during lockdown, hasn't it? And is that, that's obviously the presence of theatre. Do you think it's going to be the future? I think that we will definitely see a continuation of some of the immersive stuff online that's been going on. I'm in the middle at the moment of this incredible experience, which I genuinely, I am so blown away by. I tweeted today, I think I'm going to have to reinvent my star system because there's just... Yeah, five stars is not enough for this. And it's called The House of Sensi. You do three one-hour scenes over a space of... You can bunch them up. I'm doing them one a Saturday. But in between, you play a text-based adventure game. Now, for anyone like me who's of the BBC Basic generation, it's just so much fun. And, you know, problem-solving, love it, completely immersed in this world, the text-based world. And then you go in and you talk to the characters who you've been interacting with in there on these one hour Zoom calls basically (laughs) but it doesn't feel like that I've seen some good and some bad I saw a great one based on Sherlock Holmes the only problem with that one and I've often said this about murder mystery ones is you can't do them twice which limits the audience because a lot of immersive audiences will come back to see how it changes but if you know who the killer is you know who the killer is but it was great fun and I was playing with this lovely family who were all playing separately and this couple who were a mother and daughter and they weren't part of this family but the family was so lovely and really funny and the two lads at one point one of the older ones said dad do you need me to come and sort out your technology dad was like yeah vanished off one screen and came back on another. <laughs> so I think that it will continue in some form, but I also know that every immersive actor I know, every immersive director I know, all the creative people I know are itching to get back into real life. Because part of the joy of immersive, as my friend Beth said, is that gin and tonic afterwards where you chat about your experience and, and you know, you, the reason I'm friends with these people is because of those moments afterwards as much as how much I enjoy their creative works. Well, yes, I mean, hopefully things are going to reopen again. I mean, you know, you mentioned the face-to-face interaction side of it. I do know pretty much the last thing you did before lockdown was immersive theatre. How do you know that, Timothy? <laughs> because I was there, as was previous guest Shanine Salmon. <laughs> But 
indeed. <laughs> I've also said all along that lockdown will never be properly over for me until, well, until I've seen Black Widow, but that's the other podcast we're going into there. But until I've seen the much-delayed Grace Petrie gig, which I was going to go to for my birthday, and it's just been, bless her, there have been constant updates of it being put back and put back and put back. And with any luck, that's going to be the first proper thing I do. But speaking of things reopening, you're planning to get your place staged, hopefully over the summer, I believe. Oh, please God, yes. I'm hoping, th- I mean, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but I think there's a venue who are likely to put it on for me. I just need to raise the money. So if anyone fancies the sound of my play, which I will explain in a moment, we do have a GoFundMe, and I'm sure Tim can put a link on the page for it. And yeah, I'm really excited. It's my first play. Is it going to change the world of playwriting as we know it? No. Am I proud of it? Yes, absolutely. I really, really am. But what I really want to know is kind of the impetus behind it, because it's obviously it's based around Leonard Cohen, or rather the musical Leonard Cohen. Uh, it's not a biographical piece as far as I can tell, but he did have quite an interesting no, life. No. <laughs> but it's interesting that to me that, you know, anyone who knows me will know I'm a big 60s obsessive, singer-songwriters in particular, except I have a real blind spot when it comes to Leonard Cohen, who is a little bit too serious for me. And there's also, this is a very me reason, but there was a BBC Two show in the late 60s called Once More with Felix, presented by Julie Felix, that had all the big singer-songwriters of the day on. There's very little bit left now. The addition with Tim Buckley doing a duet with her on Phantasmagoria for two and then doing I Don't Need It to Rain and going on so long that the camera crew were glaring at him while the credits rolled. That wasn't kept. The one with Leonard Cohen was and that kind of puts him in my bad books. That's not his fault. I know. I was going to say can you convince me why you know he inspires this passion? Well A you're wrong about him being too serious. He's actually the layers of irony in his words are fantastic and actually very funny when I went to see him oh gosh when was it about 2010 2009 something like that he it was at the O2 and he ran onto stage and he was 76 at this point and he says ladies and gentlemen last time I was in London I was just a 60 year old kid with a dream (laughs) how can you not love that man There is real humour in his songs, actually. His reputation is wrong. I would say maybe some of the earlier stuff is more straight-laced, but I mean, I love it. Yeah, the reason I wanted to... So the play is not about Leonard Cohen, I should just make that clear. The play is actually about two fading musicians. They've been at the top of their game, but they're now in their late 50s, early 60s, although the poor sort of us to play him is younger, but I'm sure he can play older because he's a fantastic actor. And they're still gigging but they're kind of doing the folk circuit scene so they're you know it's it, it's not the place they once were at the setup is that they're sharing a dressing room at the Broadstairs Folk Festival and they are musicians and they talk like musicians and musicians talk in a very specific way and I know because I've hung around enough bloody guitar playing boys they talk about songs and they talk through songs so the theme that I wanted to explore first of all we explore their journey and their relationship with each other and it's a two-hander but the question of the play is is love like love songs and is love like love songs throughout your life or is it only like that when you're a giddy hormonal teenager well I should say for the benefit of anyone listening I am a keyboard player not a guitarist so I'm exempt from that That sounds like a really good way of exploring, you know, that theme extrapolated from an interest. Imagine if I said extrapolated properly, how much better that would have been. (laughs) Yeah, but you wouldn't be (laughs) used (laughs) to 
but to me, that's what the theatre's all about. It's interesting ideas, generally. I mean, I know people like the bigger experience of bigger venues, bigger presentation, but I'm all about smaller venues and interesting mm, things mm. being tried. I mean, will it feature live music as well? It will feature live singing. I think the original plan before everything went kablooey was to have a live band. So each scene is broken up by a song. And the original plan was to have a band playing that and then keep them on afterwards for well, karaoke ironically given that I've been so denigratory about <laughs> and you know make it a kind of real experience but we just can't I can't afford that which is a real shame because it would have been fantastic but you know if it, if it does reasonably well if it if it does anything at all and I want to bring it back for something else then we might explore that it will definitely have live singing which is why I need to find a woman who can sing of a certain age and the problem is you're right I mean I love fringe theatre fringe theatre is my favourite kind I mean I, I do go for a big West End extravaganza every now and again I love Hamilton I saw the Joseph a couple of years ago and I just adored it but fringe theatre is very close to my heart the problem I'm having and this is a fringe play it's never going to be on the major West End stage it's not that kind of play it belongs in a small black box the problem I have is that a lot of actors fringe is kind of seen as the first rung on the ladder so most fringe actors are quite young and I've written a play that I'm too young to star in but I can't find an actress who's old enough to star in <laughs> but I will I mean as you say you love smaller venues what shows have you seen that you've really enjoyed well in terms of things that I tend to like seeing early versions of things that go on to something bigger you know which technically will qualify as a bit looks unfamiliar because I suppose I'm bending <laughs> the rules slightly but you get different lines in there and so one of the things I'm most delighted about was I was at the very first performance of We Apologise for the Inconvenience by previous guest Mark Griffiths the Douglas Adams play about the writing of So Long Thanks for All the Fish which did change quite a lot as it went on because it went into other media and it was constantly sort of developed along the way but if I can cheat slightly I'm going to say I like to see work in progress versions of comedian shows people like Stuart mm. Lee always does interesting tryouts but particularly Richard Herring I always make a point of going to see the very early versions of what become you know his Edinburgh shows and so on and it's interesting the stuff that mm. gets dropped that you know you're one of the only people to see like I remember someone likes yogurt originally had a bit about how we'd all forced him to come out to the theatre he could be the home watching heroes but he never knew when Siler was going to be on or not he did a big long thing about that and obviously then heroes sort of disappeared so that went but the thing I saw him do a couple of times was now this is going to sound a bit suspiciously familiar to people I think was he tried to get off the ground a long routine kind of spoofing Peter Kay and so on about the Mars bar said like that and it was just a kind of rant of you remember the Mars bar don't you remember the Mars bar you to get. You can't get them anymore the Mars bar <laughs> what happened to the Mars bar why did none of you remember the Mars bar and being me I was in hysterics at that and most people were just kind of looking blankly I'm really glad that I got to witness that because I don't know how many outings it got and that's the sort of thing that I like to see so hopefully when your play is on I might see a bit that's exclusive to that first performance who knows so if people want to support No Cure for Love where can they go? I mean, it's on my pinned tweet. So if you find me at Emma Burnell underscore, my pinned tweet is the GoFundMe, but it's also at GoFundMe.com forward slash staging no cure for love so if you just search go fund me staging no cure for love you should find me right well there's just one thing left for me to ask which is that when i saw doctor who the ultimate adventure when i was standing outside afterwards john perjury came out and said i am only signing a few autographs 
grabbed my programme when I wasn't angling for his autograph, <laughs> signed it upside down and thrust it very angrily back into my hand. Did you get Alison Hannigan's autograph after when Harry met Sally? I did not, although I've been to enough Buffy conventions, although she was never at a Buffy convention that I went to, but I have enough Buffy autographs and obviously the photograph that you've seen many, many times of me and James Marsden. Okay, well here's hoping that people ask you for your autograph after the play's on. Emma, good luck and it's been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives of Henry VIII to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.